Okay. Um, I did run through this once and timed it at 20 minutes, but it was going very quickly, so apologies if I speak quite quickly over some of it. The first part particularly because I think it is quite well-known material. Um, and the basis of this paper isn't really to uh, argue, even though the title is Eniac versus Colossus, it's not to argue about who was first or anything like that, but it's really just to discuss the context in which the computer was developed in both sides of the Atlantic at almost exactly the same time, uh, but for very different military reasons. And then secondly, to explore the impact that those different contexts had on the later presentation of computers to the public. So first of all, if we talk about um, the ENIAC, we've heard a lot from the uh, keynote speakers about the uh, warfare becoming more technological. And it got to such a state that uh, the US Army had to create a ballistics research laboratory at the Aberdeen Proving Ground in Maryland. And the purpose of that was uh, mainly to calculate the artillery shell firing tables. So we've seen those, those shells, but uh, all of those new weapons that were being developed so rapidly were completely useless if they weren't accompanied by tables such as these um, because it told them uh, what distance the shell would travel at what elevation and also had all kinds of calculations in to take account of wind speed, air density and all kinds of um, uh, actual conditions which would make a difference. Now the point is that one single trajectory, so one line of that table that you can see there on the right hand side would take a, a computer, which was a person at that time, a human mathematician, 12 hours to calculate just one of those trajectories. And each firing table required hundreds of trajectories to be calculated. And in the book Turing's Cathedral, George Dyson wrote, as the US prepared to enter the war, there was a shortage of human computers at the Aberdeen Proving Ground, and an auxiliary computing section was established at the Moore School of Electrical Engineering at the University of Pennsylvania. The calculations performed by these human computers were originally performed on analogue mechanical calculators and later by more advanced machines such as uh, differential analyzers that had been developed since the mid-19th century but became more practical with this design by Vannevar Bush. Um, and he developed those between 1928 and 1931 at MIT. And the electromechanical uh, Differential analyzers were built at the Ballistics Research Laboratory and at the basement of the Moore School of Electrical Engineering, which is where this photograph was taken, in 1935. And at the time, those were the largest mechanical computers that had been built. But even with these, they couldn't keep up with the demands. One trajectory had now gone down from 12 hours to be calculated by a human computer to 10 to 20 minutes. But that still meant that a full book um, of firing calculations uh, would take about three months to deliver and requests for the preparation of new, new uh, tables for a new gun were coming in at the rate of six a day so there's just no way they could cope with it so John Morkley, a physicist directly involved in the production of these tables proposed the building of the an electronic digital computer to speed up and improve the process uh, based on decimal counting units built from vacuum tubes and he conceived and designed this the uh, electronic numerical integrator and computer with significant help from a graduate student, John Presper Eckert. And they built this at the Moore School of Electrical Engineering and it began. the project began in July 1943, took just under three years and half a million pounds to complete. Had 18,000 vacuum tubes 
It weighed 30 tonnes and covered a floor area of about 65 square metres. Um, but there were great concerns over the reliability because of the nature of vacuum tubes. Um, so it meant that with repair times, the computer only functioned 50% of the time. And in fact, its longest period of continuous uh, running filled operation was only five days. I'll go on to the different context of the uh, Colossus being developed. At the Government Code and Cipher School, based at Bletchley Park, they'd been working with the uh, decrypting secret German messages, including the Enigma machine, um, for a number of years. Now, the Enigma machine, Enigma machine, I'm sure you know, was based on these three rotors um, that could be set in different positions, which meant there were millions <coughs> of different starting points and then whenever you typed in uh, a letter, you were given a transposed letter lit up on the lamp board there. And even if you pressed the same key twice, you would get a different letter. So it was a very complex code to break, but not impossible. And the Polish cryptographers um, had actually broken the Enigma code as early as 1932. And this is the only image I can find of their mechanical kind of reverse engineering of the Enigma machine, which allowed um, the code to be broken. But it only worked because um, the Enigma machine's rotors were only changed every few months. As soon as war broke out, those rotor initial positions were changed at least once every day. So there was no way that the mechanical machine here could um, be, be set in all the different positions in time. So the information that they could get was, was useless. So they told the British in 1939 that they couldn't do it anymore. So that's when... Um, <coughs> Alan Turing came in and developed that mechanical Polish machine into the well-known uh, bomb, the electromechanical bomb, which could decode Enigma machines within a few hours. And even though Renz ran it for 24 hours a day, there was still a huge backlog of, um, of messages wanting to be decoded. And that only got worse when a higher-level code was introduced with a machine that had 10 rotors to set, called the Lorenz cipher. So there were already millions of uh, variables in the first one with three, so you can imagine going up to ten was just a massive, massive increase and it made it impossible um, for the electromechanical machines to tackle. So uh, Max Newman, who was the mathematician at Bletchley Park and Turing's tutor at Cambridge, asked the telecommunications research establishment at Malvern to produce an electronic machine to automate the initial, uh, finding the initial rotor settings. And that first one that you can see... Um, here, this is at the museum in Bletchley Park at the moment, was nicknamed the uh, Heath Robinson machine by its operators, and it was built at the post office research station at Dollis Hill in London. And it used two paper tapes, one with the uh, initial uh, code settings on and one with the coded message, and they ran them in parallel until they lined up. But they were travelling at 1,000 characters per second, um, and the paper just couldn't cope with it. He just ripped the spiked wheels they ran on, just ripped the paper to bits. So it wasn't very reliable. So that's when um, they asked people to look at um, developing an electronic machine. Uh, Tommy Flowers who was an electrical engineer at Dollis Hill, and he'd worked with Turing on developing the bomb. Was brought in to try and solve the problem, and he saw that the problem was indeed those those paper tapes. And he proposed changing one of the paper tapes for an electronic circuit based on vacuum tubes. So you can see on the right-hand side there, there is still one of the paper tapes running. But uh, you, could, uh, you, you didn't have to keep them perfectly in line because the electronic system was taking over the other role of the other paper tape. 
<coughs> and the other thing that uh, Tommy Flowers had worked out that um, what you needed was a series of very, very fast switches. And a, a valve could switch at a thousand times more quickly than the mechanical relays that were used in the um, Heath Robinson machine. And it also worked out that valves were actually very reliable as long as you never turned them off. So as long as you left them on all the time, they were fine. It's just when people kept turning them on and off, that's when they break. Anyway, the officials at uh, Bletchley Park were quite sceptical and they wouldn't back the work, but Flowers was so convinced that he actually spent £1,000 of his own money and and 10 months designing and building the Colossus and delivered it at the end of 1943. And it worked so well and decoded messages so quickly that they immediately ordered 10 uh, improved machines. And the Mark II Colossus built in 1944 contained 2,400 valves, which is a fraction of the size of the NEM, Um, but it was five times faster. And it's just interesting, when I, was, uh, when I first turned up at the conference here, I was introduced to the director who spoke yesterday at the beginning, um, and his father actually worked on that Colossus, that redesigned Colossus, which is quite amazing. Okay, so that's the kind of the context in which those two machines were developed. Um, one to develop to solve ballistic calculations, one to break encrypted messages. So they're, they're done for particular reasons, and... One was widely disseminated and one was built in complete secrecy. That's what I'm going to talk about now. And one directly led to the birth of the commercial computer industry and the other was only indirectly involved in being in furthering work. But there is a whole argument to be had here about whether um, innovations produced as a result of governmental imperatives, national patriotism, funded by the state, without any egos involved, without patents having to be filed... All of those kind of uh, issues are actually a better ground for developing um, innovations than um, corporate communications with commercial priorities and shareholders to deal with. And there is a lot of material I'm just starting to look at written about those two different contexts. So I think that's kind of an interesting angle to look at. Um, But what I'm interested in really is how immediately after the war those computing developments would have were presented to the public. So if we talk about the ENIAC first of all, um, no one had taken into account in designing either the Colossus or the ENIAC what they looked like to the general public because they weren't intended for that. They weren't built for production. Um, it didn't matter if anyone who was looking at the machine understood it at all as long as the person who was operating it did. So there was no... HCI design work or user-centred work or anything like that, it was, it was not uh, an issue. But as soon as you started presenting it to the public, something quite interesting happened, and I'd, I'd heard rumours about this, and it took quite a bit digging out to find it, but I did find the evidence in the end. What happened was the, uh, the ENIAC was presented to the public on Valentine's Day in 1946 with a dramatic press launch and one historian of technology has labelled it as the press conference that shook the world because it were, the headlines that resulted from it were a major factor in the public perception of computers for decades to come. Because the, uh, despite the massive funding that had been involved in developing the ENIAC, uh, the machine wasn't completed in time to be of any use for the war itself. It didn't actually uh, be completed until the end of uh, November 1945. So its first proper use for the military was actually in the Cold War uh, in providing calculations required to build the H-bomb. And many high-profile scientists, including people like Vannevar Bush, who developed the differential analyzers, were being quite outspoken about the ENIAC being a foolish waste of money. 
So they needed a high-profile dramatic press launch as a way to garner public support for more money to continue the research and development on its successor, the EDVAC. So in preparing for the press conference, it was decided that the huge technological leaps they'd made weren't impressive enough for public consumption. The team felt that an additional visual display of the computing process being performed was required. Film footage of the press launch shows how this was achieved with a commentary explaining... Here we see John Morkley standing before a wall of blinking lights that illuminates as ENIAC comes up with the answers to a calculation. The lights themselves, however, had no real purpose except showmanship. As the engineers 60 years ago prepared for the debut of the new machine, they noticed the ENIAC's 18,000 vacuum tubes were not visible on the film they were making, so even when the computer was working to solve a computation, there was little sign of anything happening. So they came up with an idea, a simplistic, almost humorous idea but one that came to symbolise the very concept of a computer in the minds of the American public. The engineers put large light bulbs on the machine and painted numbers on them. Now the film was able to capture the impressive bank of blinking lights, populations and changing totals that the new machine produced. (coughs) And what I'm hoping... Get this to work. uh, That first clip was from (coughs) another film, which uh, that quote was uh, taken from. And I also found this very short... uh, piece here, so I'm going to just play this for you. Oh. In 1946, moviegoers got their first glimpse of an astonishing new machine. Are people becoming obsolete? A giant electronic brain has started cogitating at the University of Pennsylvania. It's made a vacuum to So that kind of exposure, um, it was massively uh, um, disseminated and the headlines actually referred directly to the flashing lights. Some of them said, uh, blinking ENIAC, a blinking whiz, electronic calculator operating at Penn does the work of 20,000 persons. That was the Philadelphia record. And electronic computer flashes answers. May Speed Engineering was the front page of the New York Times. And those press releases uh, generated so much interest that um, news started to come out about other computers that had been developed during the war in total secrecy. So people started to get very, very interested in computers, and IBM was quite quite keen to um, to capitalise on that. So Thomas Watson, the uh, president of IBM, ordered his engineers to build the largest uh, computer they could, uh, the IBM Selective Sequence Electronic Calculator, and that's what you can see in this picture here, and it was built in only eight months. Um, and in the biography, his son's biography, he says, trying to make sure the SEC would get as much public attention as the ENIAC, Dad had it installed in our showroom on the ground floor of IBM headquarters in Manhattan, in full view of the sidewalk. Passers-by on 57th Street could look in the window and watch the SSEC work. It was an amazing sight to come upon in the middle of the city. Three long walls filled with electrical consoles and panels, all studded with dials, switches, meters and little neon indicator lights that flashed whenever calculations were going on. Hundreds of people stopped to watch it every day, and for years it was the image that popped into people's minds when they heard the word computer. And it's just interesting that when the actual... That's an actual photograph of the installation... 
but that's the image that was uh, put in the newspapers because the Thomas Watson senior said, oh, that's fine, but those pillars are in the way. Get rid of them. And obviously couldn't because they were holding the whole building up. <laughs> so what they did was they airbrushed them out, and that was this airbrushed image with no handrails and no pillars is what everyone saw. So the uh, in terms of the uh, the Colossus, uh, the, because it was destroyed after the end of the war, Tommy Flowers was ordered to burn all the plans. Um, it was a complete secret until 1970. So uh, how it did lead on to other um, developments was Alan Turing worked at the National Physical Laboratory in 1945, and he worked on this machine, the Pilot Ace. And so I'm going to run through this quite quickly because we're short of time. And he later worked at Manchester University where they constructed the Manchester Mark I, which was turned into the first commercial computer, the Ferranti Mark I. And interestingly, the first uh, place that that was given to the public, was shown to the public, was at the Festival of Britain under the guise of Nimrod, the Ferranti Nimrod, and it had been adapted specially to play the old strategic game, Nim. Um, and just like with the ENIAC, they put extra lights on it to show the game in process what the machine had done in terms of calculating the uh, previous moves and working out what the next one should be, and all the lines light up there to show people what what's happening. So it gave that impression again of the uh, calculator, sort of the machine having this kind of machine intelligence. In America, the people who uh, developed the ENIAC went on to set up um, another company and they built the UNIVAC. And this was quite interesting because this was <coughs> the first time that tape storage appeared. And instead of um, being hidden behind um, metal screens, they're actually under these curved glass screens on the right there. And I think that it's been said that that was quite important because the sight of the tapes moving backwards and forwards as they were looking for information gave the impression that the machine was thinking and trawling around and looking for things. And it also became the uh, part of the computer that helped it to be anthropomorphised into a kind of a robot because it formed the eyes of cartoon computers that appeared around the same time. And it also became seen as a, a very prescient machine. It was used in the 1952 American elections and it correctly predicted a landslide victory for Eisenhower even though it was supposed to be a complete dead heat and nobody knew who was going to win. So it, it kind of proved itself there. But the fact that the um, IBM had put that machine in the showroom set a precedent. People wanted to show off what computers they'd invested in, and I wrote an article on this recently in, in Interiors. It led to the development of the glass house, uh, because you had to isolate computers for the atmospheric reasons um, and because um, you didn't want people to go in there if they weren't quite, uh, authorised to go in there. So they built glass rooms, glass-walled rooms within buildings to show off the computers and yet restrict uh, access and the fact that they were going to be seen and, and manufacturers knew that computers were going to be shown in that way led to developments such as the introduction of colour um, quite often they were coloured the different parts in different colours so that a brochure could explain what the different parts did to visitors so they had commemorative brochures that they gave out explaining their new computers but also the introduction of uh, flashing lights carried on and this is a picture of one in 1970, the IBM System 370. And the world head of design, Tom Hardy, relates that the fact while the majority of the myriad rapidly flashing lights on the console of this computer could provide some basic uh, indications to operators and service personnel, they mostly served as a dynamic light show that visually expressed a complex system processing large amount of data at a rapid pace. So basically a lot of that panel is just for show because they knew it was going to be looked at through the walls of a glass uh, room. Okay. 
So just to conclude, um, prior to the development of the electronic computer, the public's exposures to calculating technology was limited to mechanical devices that weren't much different in effect from Babbage's early engines um, that he proposed at the end of the at the middle of the 19th century, where you could see cogs and pinions moving and counters adding up. And even uh, electromechanical machines like the Harvard Mark I um, had electric electrical mechanical relays when you could see contacts bouncing and apparently being in that was like listening to a room full of women knitting so there was an audible feedback as well so there, were, there was feedback telling you what the machines were doing of course when you introduce uh, the electronic com- uh, computing that all disappears so they solved the problem with the application of technically unnecessary display of lights which came associated with electronic computing thereafter um, and I think it's an aspect of electronic computers that was readily picked up and even exaggerated in media representation, representation of computers in mainstream films, such as Desk Set, so here in 1957, Billion Dollar Brain in 1967, that should say, sorry, and especially 2001 A Space Odyssey. So I would argue that such media representations directly influence the public's expectation of the capability of electronic computers. In terms of the social construction of technology, this is important, as once a set of expectations is present in the minds of a relevant social group, it becomes a deciding factor in the acceptance of various forms of computers, and therefore a driving force in the actual technological development of computers themselves. Once the idea of artificial intelligence represented by flashing lights became embedded in the public psyche, it became a difficult notion to remove, and arguably the inevitability of artificial intelligence became an expectation of the future of computing technology. Thank you.